Through the Old Testament, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, Sunday evenings, we go through the Old Testament, and so we are in the book of Esther, Esther the Queen, Esther the Queen. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time in your word and uh, opening up your word to us, every bit of it, and Lord, we as a, as a group of believers in you tonight just agree with each other, Father, that we need you, we desperately need you, we need your grace, we need to know about your grace, and Lord, there is uh, just a wonderful, wonderful story here before us uh, that happened, Lord, um, about 2,500 years ago, nonetheless, it's, it's, Father, even as your word just brings it to life today, uh, a message of grace, a message of your power, your faithfulness, I pray that you would speak all those things to our heart this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So Esther, for some students of the Bible, this is a very puzzling book and, in fact, so puzzling that some of the church fathers, the er, those are the early church patriarchs, not talking about um, the apostles or anything like that, but some of the early church fathers who lived in the first two or three centuries after the church was started, uh, actually concluded that it should not be in the Bible. Of course, it wasn't their decision because it was already put together, but... Uh, they were most puzzled, and uh, some people continue to be puzzled by the fact, a number of facts about this book. One, there's no mention of God in the book of Esther. It's an, uh, it is an odd thing, to be sure. Uh, there's no mention of worship. There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of faith. There's no even an allusion to heaven or hell. No New Testament writer quotes Esther. And... Uh, so some have concluded that it's an interesting book of history, uh, but there's nothing really spiritual about it. They're wrong. <laughs> the book of Esther is a tremendous picture of the faithfulness of God, and yes, on the surface, it is a history book, and it, it's, it, or it's an account which happened in a particular space and time in history, as all are all the events in the Bible. But beneath the surface, what, uh, or maybe you could say behind the stages, what you see here is a tremendous picture of the providence of God, the provision of God, the protection of God. It's a picture of a loving father uh, to, uh, and, and how he really holds his children underneath the everlasting arms, his weak faith and backsliding children. The fact that there is little mention of God in this book probably has a lot to do with the spiritual climate of the Jews in Babylon at this time. Now, if you've been with us as we've gone through Esther and Nehemiah, you will know that uh, in 605 B.C., the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, came in, wiped out... Well, actually, in 605, he didn't actually wipe out Jerusalem, but he started carrying away the Jews to Babylon. He came back two more times. The final time, he wiped them out. Uh, and for 70 years, the sort of 
the, the, the Jews, most of them, lived there in Babylon in exile for 70 years, just as the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied would happen because of their ongoing idolatry, which got worse and worse and worse because of the fact that they had uh, for 490 years ignored the Sabbath year, which was required under the law of Moses. They were carried away uh, to Babylon. And 70 years after the first exile... Uh, of the Jews to Babylon, uh, we the King Cyrus in 536 B.C., Cyrus, king of Persia, just as Isaiah had prophesied 150 years before, he gave a decree that the Jews in Babylon could go back to Jerusalem and build their temple. Only 50,000 went back out of an estimated 2 million. And what had happened is that the over 70 years is that those the same Jews who when they left Jerusalem they had been devastated they were filled with sorrow they were filled with uh, despair we read some I believe we read Psalm 137 which is a psalm about uh, basically their trip back to Babylon it says that those who plundered us, in Psalm 137, verse 3 says, those who plundered us requested that we sing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And verse 4, it says, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. And it goes on. Uh, But the thing is, is after 70 years, many of them had prospered so much, had gotten so comfortable in this land that they weren't interested in really obeying what was, I believe, the call of God for them to go back. And uh, sadly, this is a picture of many Christians when they first come to uh, to Christ and they say the same type of things. Oh, Jesus, I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. Um, and let my hand forget its skill if, if I forget, um, forget you and all kinds of commitments uh, uh, like that but they forget the grace of God and they fall forget about the grace of God and they fall away and this is how many of the Jews were in Babylon who were basically 50,000 went back they really wanted to follow, follow the Lord many others uh, didn't want to leave their comfort and their prosperity and uh, it has been said that they instead of the song of Zion started singing the song of Babylon and they were a weak faith and backslidden people uh, it is believed that's why they didn't take the invitation to go back so the book of Esther some uh, some believe that that's the very reason there's so little in there about faith and worship because this was not a people living in Babylon at that time who really cared a lot about faith and worship nevertheless you will see the faithfulness of God anyway and the theme of this book if there is a theme is this second Timothy uh, 2.13, wonderful verse, says, Even if we are faithless, he will remain faithful because he cannot deny himself. Well, let's repeat that. Even when we are faithless, he will remain faithful because he cannot deny himself. And though he's dealing here in Babylon with a huge population of uh, weak, faith, backslidden people, he had promised 
unconditionally to care for these people, to love them, and uh, to, to Abraham and uh, Jacob, Isaac, Moses. He had promised that he was not going to uh, forsake these people. And so here you see a tremendous example of, uh, of the faithfulness of, of God. And uh, so if you're here tonight and you have had a season of uh, great unfaithfulness, maybe even long one, well, take heart because God is faithful even when you are faithless. He wants something much, much better for your life, but no, lo- no matter how long your track record is of unfaithfulness, uh, God's not unfaithful. And this book is a, de- uh, a demonstration of that. So in verse 1 of the book of Esther, of chapter 1, it says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, which is Xerxes. This was the Ahasuerus. <laughs> I'm just going to say Xerxes, who reigned over the 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And so uh, at this time... It is believed, uh, well actually let me go on verse 2, it says, In those days when King Xerxes sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And so it is believed that at this time, uh, there, that it is believed at this time that King Xerxes here is getting ready to invade Greece. Uh, and we know from history that King Xerxes mobilized two million men and he invaded Gre- Greece, uh, Thermopylae, with hundreds of, of ships and he was successful, but his navy um, went on to Salamis, and the navy was destroyed, and he was defeated. If he had won, world history would have been very, very different. Um, but this, it is believed that he has gathered together uh, in Persia. That's the reason that he's doing this very thing. He's gathering all these... Uh, officials, verse 3 says, from all over his kingdom. And at verse 4, he's showing them the riches of his glorious kingdom, sort of a vainglory thing. This is what um, we men, apart from Christ, are really into, uh, gathering people um, around us to admire us. It's a tragic thing, uh, but this is, this is the flesh here. Loves to be admired, and this is what he is doing. So, he has a party, and uh, it goes on for 180 days, verse 4. That is some kind of party, really. By the way, this is present-day Iran, where this is taking place. And it's, um, verse 5 says, And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days, so uh, uh, as if the 180 days were not enough, they had attacked on another seven days. The king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the, the citadel, from great to small in the, uh, the court of the garden of the king's palace. 
There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble, and they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other. I mean, there was, this was so much luxury. You see, things haven't changed, right? I mean, people just want an excuse to spend a lot of money and just to... That that whole thing with, with with sensuality and riches and luxury, and it's nothing new. People have been falling for this lie for thousands of years, and uh, in fact, uh, you know, here you see excess that you'll see in very few places, even in the world today. Uh, that so much so that the goblets that they drank wine out of were made out of gold, and not one of them was the same. They were all different. They were all molded uh, different. So uh, some kind of, of party there. Verse 10 says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry, in other words, he was drunk, he commanded Mehuman and then uh, Bizda, Harbana, Bigtha, Abatka, Zether, and Carcass. Hmm, Carcass. Don't name your boy that. Anyway, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes, Ahasuerus. Where's Stephanie? Stephanie, pronounce it for me. Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. And so, Ahasuerus, okay, you see? Uh, Ahasuerus, and he commanded them, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and to the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. She was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner towards all who knew law and justice, Verse 15, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus? I already forgot. Ahasuerus. <laughs> because she didn't do according to um, King Ahasuerus brought to her by three eunuchs. And uh, Mehuken answered before the king and the princess, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king but also... Uh, all the princes and all the people who are in all the province of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. In other words, because of this bad example, uh, they will, um, the women throughout the empire are going to be following this bad example of not obeying their husbands. Verse 19, if it please the king, let a royal decree go out. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes and so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she when the king's decree he 
when the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mamukin. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province. Oops. Hope I can do this. I may need help. <laughs> Sorry, is it on? No? It's okay. Thank you. All right. Good job, Eric. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. So in Persia at that time, there were many different provinces, different languages, and he's sending out the decree to everyone saying, uh, the Queen Vashti has been deposed, and her, the... the um, her position, her royal position is going to be given to another better than she. And so it is believed that uh, Queen Vashti refused to go out uh, and do what her husband said because, you know, there it was clearly, as you can see, it said he was drunk when he asked her out. He was drunk and it was an enormous party of drunken men and he was going to disrespect her in such a way to bring out this woman uh, and who was the queen and should be honored and certainly this is the, no way a husband should be treating his wife and, and she refused that she just didn't want to have she was, it says she was beautiful to behold she didn't want to have a thousand men slobbering over her and you know this it's it's amazing this book is 20 this story is 2500 years old and still this same sin prevails in our culture where women are valued by many for their beauty and for their body and they're not valued as human beings and uh you know, this is just so rampant in our entertainment culture. And this is what uh, the young girls grow up with, thinking that they're only valued for the curves on their body and their, and their beauty. But this is the flesh. This is what Jesus came to die for. So that, you know, husbands would love their wives like... Um, like Christ loved the church to give marriages not only a chance but really a guarantee of, of victory as people come to know the Lord and start loving their their wives like uh, he loves the church but here you see that same sin uh, 2,500 years ago some people think that somehow we have come a long way no the world is as sinful as it ever was it needs Jesus as much as it ever has and so she refuses to come, and he uh, basically has her deposed. He has her deposed. And um, now some people, you know, ask for from time to time, the Bible does talk about 
how it's important for a wife to submit to her husband, and uh, it's important to understand what that means. Submission in the biblical context supremely um, does not mean that the man gets to choose the color of the carpet and the food and the restaurant and the vacations that the family does. No, if he loves her like if he loves his wife like Christ loves the church, she gets to choose all those things. <laughs> but he needs to be a spiritual leader. He needs to be the one to um, first one to forgive, the first one to seek the Lord, the first one to put to death his pride. That's what really makes a marriage. And um, but the submission is 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 important uh, in a marriage. And from time to time. I get the question, well, what if my husband is asking me to do something wrong, to sin? And the answer is, you don't submit. You, you submit to the Lord first. And so if it's, it is true, that's the reason that Vashti did not go out, because she didn't want to be, have a thousand guys slobbering over her. That was not sin. That was not sort of an ungodly lack of submission because to do something is incredibly dishonoring to the Lord. And so uh, I would say almost every time I've done marriage counseling, and if you have ever heard my messages on the web to, to husbands and wives, almost every time I do marriage counseling, I find out that the husband has an incorrect view of what it means for his wife to submit. Uh, he thinks it has something to do with basically becoming a little Napoleon inside his home. You know, do this, do that, and let me micromanage your life. No. <laughs> has actually nothing to do with that. If you love your wife like Christ loved the ch loves the church, you allow her to manage the home like it says in First. Timothy chapter 5 is her responsibility to do. Uh, but um, here you have an example, of, uh, an example of someone who I do not believe was in any kind of sin for uh, not doing what she did. Nevertheless, um, obviously, the guy she decided to disobey, he was one powerful dude. And uh, he has her... He has her deposed. So chapter 2 says, After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Now, some people think that between chapter 1 and chapter 2, he had gone to Greece, had his navy slaughtered, and had come back, and that's... And now he's sort of sulking, and it says he remembered Queen Vashti. There's the sense here that it happened a while ago, and he's thinking about uh, what he had decreed against her, and he's thinking, man, I need a new wife. And verse 2 says, Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be, virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, though, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, this, uh, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of 
Hegai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparation be given them. And so you have this guy, uh, Hegai, or Hegai. He um, is in charge of uh, gathering the most beautiful women in all the, the land, the virgins in all the land. And uh, you might think, well, that's a pretty good job. Uh, but uh, uh, before you think that that's a pretty good job, note there that he was a eunuch and they made sure that uh, the people in charge of the king's harem uh, wouldn't engage in any, what is it, any uh, breaches of trust, if you will. And so um, they were uh, made eunuchs. And it says that he he oversaw this beauty preparation. Verse 4, Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been uh, carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is um, Esther, his uncle's daughter. So um, it's like a cousin, his cousin, for uh, she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So you have an example of adoption here and a, a wonderful picture. He adopts her he, and, and little does he know this uh, little girl is going to save his life uh, and the life of the nation of Israel. Verse 8, so it was when the king's command and decree was heard, were heard and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Hegai, or Hegai that Esther was also taken uh, to the king's palace uh, into the care of Hegai, the custodian of the women. Now Josephus, the historian, uh, the Jewish historian, uh, says that Mordecai tried to hide her. And I think that's just pure fable and legend, and, and we will find out a little later why uh, that was. But um, uh, she was known, she was known to be um, a beautiful uh, person, and so uh, she is taken uh, into custody. Verse 9 says, Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice uh, maidservants were provided for her from the king's uh, uh, palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. And so uh, here you see the beginnings of what is the providential favor of God, the hand of God uh, with uh, Esther in verse 9. It says, it, uh, you know, she pleased the eunuch. So the guy who was in charge, God's already bringing favor uh, um, to her. And in, in this man who's in, in charge there, the eunuch, and he also obviously wields a lot of influence there in the palace. 
And, you know, this is what the Lord does, uh, will do in your life. You will find as you are seeking God, as you are following the Lord, as you uh, begin to obey the Lord, and you're in His Word, and you're with the people of God, and you're in prayer, uh, you will find that for no apparent reason, you start having favor in the eyes of people at work, and you're, you're all of a sudden you're prospered and uh, sure, you're working hard, but, you know, in, in America, a lot of other people work really hard as well. Uh, and a lot of times, uh, you know, uh, there's favor. God just will give you favor. Uh, and, you know, the Bible really is a long, long record of that very thing happened. The life of Joseph is, is a tremendous example of that. But I, you know, get these testimonies all the time from, from Christians who uh, they get favor and, and God is using them somewhere. And, uh, uh, you know, the Proverbs talks about how, you know, the righteous man who follows God, uh, they will not, uh, you know, uh, work before servants, but they will be ushered into the presence of kings. And that's, uh, that so much happens because the Lord wants to use you. He does. And here, so you see the beginning of the hand of God. So is God mentioned in the book of Esther? No. Uh, but you see clearly here the hand of the hand of God uh, starting to move, uh, in spite of the fact these people may or appear to be at the time very weak faith, backslidden, not talking themselves a whole lot about God. Verse ten says, Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And so this is where I believe uh, Josephus' story. Uh, really um, is proven to be sort of uh, nothing more than a fable because uh, if he was hiding her, if she was so well known uh, to everyone, uh, her beauty, they would have known that um, uh, she was, uh, this was a Jewish family. But um, um, here you see it says Mordecai had told her, look, don't tell her, tell them that you're a Jew. And the reason... Um, maybe a few things. One could be his own sort of weak faith uh, uh, at the time, his own backslidden state, but it also just may have been a wise thing uh, that, um, uh, you know, just because of um, anti-Semitism at the time, and that Jews already at this time had uh, a lot of enemies and uh, the, and as we'll see later in the book, uh, there was uh, really a big problem uh, there with uh, the people just hating the Jews. And so he told her not to reveal uh, her uh, her Jewish identity. Sometimes people ask me, "Well, when I'm interviewing, should I should I reveal? Just be right up front. I'm a Christian." And, you know, ultimately, I, I don't think there's a, necessarily a law there. I, I, I do know that um, many people, uh, in some, in some contexts, if you, you're right up and you say, I'm a Christian, you won't get hired. Um, and other times, if you say, I actually know, I, I, or, or, or if you don't bring it up, you may be able to go into a workplace and then once you have favor 
God gives you favor there, you're, you're, a, you're able to be used in a real powerful way. But if you had told them in the first place at your interview, they wouldn't have hired you in the first place. That having been said, I think it's perfectly appropriate if you feel led to be very upfront. There's no rules about this stuff. That's the wonderful thing about freedom in Christ is that we're not bound by legalism. And um, I think it was Guillermo who told me that a couple of the jobs he got, he just put right on the bottom of his resume something about, what did you put, Deuteronomy? I love the Lord with all my heart. <laughs> right. Yeah, and so, and, and so you know, and, and he, he, he was hired. So there's no um, right or wrong there. I, I, think you, I think you need to be led. Uh, so, but it, it, as people, as society becomes uh, more and more coming against, uh, against Christians, you should at least um, pray about it and have some discretion, um, you know, in this particular area. Verse 11, and every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each woman's turn came to go into uh, King Ahasuerus, and after she had completed 12 months preparation, according to the regulations for the women, for thus were the uh, days of their preparations apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh and six months uh, with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. So, any of you married men, or maybe uh, you're courting someone now, and uh, the woman or your wife is, takes a long time, never complain again. Uh, there's a whole year preparing to go into um, uh, into uh, into the king here, and you know. Does anyone remember what the wise men brought Jesus at the time of his birth? That's right, gold, myrrh, frankincense. Myrrh, and the, the inter- interesting thing about myrrh and bringing it to Jesus at the time was it, it, it speaks of death in the Bible. It was used um, as embalming to prepare the dead. And so even as they were bringing in the myrrh, uh, to the place where Jesus was born, it was a prophetic kind of thing that he had come to the world to die. That's why he came. And here you have uh, myrrh. Here, um, they were sh- uh, the women soaking in it for for twelve months. And you know, we were in Second Corinthians chapter two for a while, speaking of the necessity of us being a sweet aroma to the Lord. And, you know, in in the Old Testament, we spent a lot of time in Leviticus and just talking about over and over again in Leviticus, it talks about sin offerings, burn offerings, and as the flesh fried, as the fat fried, was burnt, it said it was a sweet aroma to the Lord. And in our life, you know, one of my favorite verses is in Second Corinthians chapter 4, which says, We who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so his life will be revealed in our mortal bodies. And death does that as we're, you know, 
and, and so there is here a, 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 a picture of the life in Christ, of being soaking every day in that, that myrrh. We who are alive are always being given over to death. So we'll be a sweet aroma uh, to the Lord. And in Second Corinthians um, uh, chapter 2, just a wonderful, wonderful uh, few verses there. Second Corinthians 2.14. Now thanks be to God, this is Paul speaking, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us spreads out, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every great place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And so this whole thing about being a sweet aroma um, to the Lord. And we must come before our king. Lord, you're, you're my king and you've been so good to me and I want to please you and I want to soak in the oil of myrrh the death of my own flesh and offer my body as a living sacrifice uh, to you lord i love you and i uh, and and when we come into our devotion time it it's we we're talking about this this morning it's not to seek something from the lord it's to seek him and it's so important that we understand that our time our devotion time with the lord when we're in the word is not about getting something from him, and it's not about learning some new thing about the Bible. It's about knowing him. It's about wanting him. It's about seeking him, and um, and, and and that's so. That's what's um, going on here. You know, in Leviticus, Leviticus, it talks about the burning of the fat, and you know what is is fat? Well, it's you know it's something that's you know, unneeded, and it's burn it, burned, and um, and I always think of Hebrews chapter uh, 12, where it says, let us get rid of everything that hinders, and that's not talking about sin. It's not talking about sin, everything that hinders, it's just talking about everything else that's not necessarily sin, but it hinders us, you know, hours on a computer, hours playing golf somewhere, or, uh, you know flipping through a magazine or, or, or whatever. Uh, for many of us, it's not, it may not be a sin issue, but it's a fat issue. We need to get rid of everything that hinders. We need to burn up the fat or allow the Holy Spirit to burn it up. And so, um, you know, when we, when we come, first come to the Lord, we hear the Holy Spirit say to us, get rid of that and don't go there and let me have that from you. You know, you, uh, you know sometimes we don't understand why, but it's because God loves, he loves it when the fat is all burned up. It's a sweet savor to him. And it brings delight to the Lord, not because he wants to steal something from us, but because he knows it'll bring us pain if we keep it in our lives. And he loves it, us so much. He loves us so much that he likes to see that which is in us, which hinders with the flesh. He likes to see it taken away, burned up, because he knows it's just going to bring us pain and misery. And so Esther prepared herself for a year in oil and, and perfume for one reason, 
to present um, uh, herself to the king. And even as we uh, need to uh, be pr- presenting ourselves to the king uh, in a similar way. And so uh, verse 14 says, In the evening she went, Let's back up to verse 13. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the woman's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the woman, to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and called her by name. Verse 15. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of uh, uh, Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the, or the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So before... Um, she ever even entered into the king's chamber uh, she was the lord was already working there's all all, the, all that favor it's such an easy thing for the for the lord to uh, give uh, us favor in someone's eyes it's a it's a comforting thing by the way if you're looking for a job that god will, can give his his children favor verse 16 so Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the other versions. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. When virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai uh, sat within the gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. Verse 21, in those days while Mordecai sat within the king's gate. I just need a drink of water here, right? So Mordecai is in the gate um, of the palace here. He's within the, the gate, and he overhears, uh, verse 21, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers. They became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name, and when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So uh, this is going to come up later. This is going to be an important thing a little later, but um, here you again... uh, this is going to, an important event that the Lord is going to use at a later time to preserve the, his children, the Jews, um, here. And, you know, every circumstance of your life, uh, things may seem inconsequential at the time, but God is working all things for good in your life. 
and for a purpose. And things that seem to be just a coincidence or something uh, turn out to be at a later time to have enormous importance. And, and so it wasn't just a coincidence that Mordecai just happened to be there overhearing this treachery on the part of these two eunuchs. The Lord was using it to preserve his people, and we'll see more about that later. Okay. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Ooh. Haman. Ooh. I mean, another real evil dude in the Bible. He, his name, even more than Sembalat and Tobiah, even more than, th- than those two names, this name is synonymous in every Jewish household with evil and wickedness. Um, uh, this guy, Haman, was the Hitler of the Old Testament. He was the Hitler of the Old Testament. And it says that he was an Agagite. And he was advanced, verse 1, and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. So he was an Agagite. Now, some of you may remember who King Agag was in, way back in the days of Saul, which would have been about four or five hundred years previous to this. In the days of Saul, King Saul was told by the Lord through the prophet Samuel to wipe out all the Amalekites. The king of the Amalekites was King Agag, a guy by the name of King Agag. And Saul, uh, the, the Amalekites, the reason the Lord asked them uh, to wipe them out completely, every single one of them, was because they were an incredibly evil people. They were the terrorists of their day. They would uh, attack the back of the pack. If you remember when the Israelites were trying to leave uh, Egypt, the poor, the weak, the nursing mothers, the elderly, this is the kind of people they were. They would attack them. Uh, They also refused to uh, uh, give them water and provisions uh, one time when it was really needed. They were descendants of Esau. And if you remember our study of Esau, uh, he gave up his birthright for uh, uh, a bowl of soup. He was just a, he's a picture of the flesh in the Old Testament, uh, in the Bible. He's a picture of uh, a type of the flesh. And our flesh, all, 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 you know, our flesh is always coming against us. And so uh, the descendants of Esau were the Amalekites. And the Amalekites themselves are a type of the flesh. God told Saul to destroy all of them. He didn't remember when Samuel, the prophet Samuel, was coming back um, after the battle. Uh, Saul came out to him and said, Blessed are you, Samuel, prophet of God. And, and Samuel responded, What's going on here? Why do I hear this bleeding of sheep? They, he, they were all, he was also supposed to wipe out all the Malachite sheep. He goes, Oh, I wanted to use them t- t- for sacrifice to the Lord. And then uh, uh, Samuel found out that he did not kill all the Malachites. In fact, of all Amalek, including the king, King Agag. Uh, and that is when that, that, that Samuel says that 
you know, most wonderful, uh, one of the most wonderful uh, uh, scriptures there in, in, in that book, First Samuel. It says, the Lord desires obedience, not sacrifice. The Lord desires obedience. And so, so often, the only thing we want to give, Lord, uh, you know, what did Saul want to give to the Lord? Oh, he just wanted to give him sacrifices. Just, it was just a, like a religious thing. Didn't want to give him his heart. He wanted to give him sacrifices. And um, so the prophet Samuel wound up killing him, Agag himself. And years later, Saul on Mount Gilboa, he was injured. And uh, he uh, actually had someone take his own life. And he, there was a guy, he was injured, and he thought he was going to be uh, taken by the Philistines. He didn't want to be tortured by the Philistines. And so uh, a, a soldier came upon him. And he said, who are you? And the man said, I am an Amalekite. And he ordered this Amalekite to, to kill him, which he did. But that is a picture of what happens when you and I do not deal with our flesh. If we don't deal with our flesh, just as Saul did not deal with the Amalekites, he didn't do what the Lord told him to do. They came back to kill him. And so 400 years later, who comes into power? Another Amalekite, another person, uh, another type of the flesh, another person who, uh, you know, a, a, a hater of God's people. All because 400 years uh, earlier, someone was disobedient to, to, the, to the Lord. And, and Serge, Pastor Serge, taught a couple of weeks ago, right, about just the consequences of our sin. It, it, it's just not, when we sin, it's just not something that, there are consequences just in our immediate generation. No, it goes on for generations and generations. And by the way, it's the same. There's a there's a whole other sermon, uh, which is on the which is about righteousness and how uh, a life of righteousness goes on for generations and generations. But sin does that too. Um, it multiplies. Righteousness multiplies uh, incredibly, uh, but so does uh, sin. And so here, four hundred years later, who comes into power? But a descendant of these people that Saul was supposed to wipe out. And in verse 2 it says, And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Uh, then the king's servants who were within the gate, king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And so, although it's true that you don't see the name of God mentioned, uh, here you have someone who, uh, just as Daniel refused to um, bow down, uh, uh, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to uh, bow down to an idol, and Daniel refused to um, um, violate the, the commands of God and worship the king and that kind of thing, uh, Mordecai, uh, you do see here uh, this remnant of faith of this man refusing to bow down and worship this uh, this man. And so in verse 4, Now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them, uh, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath 
But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Which, so, eleven months, the, uh, in eleven months, there was going to be this decree to wipe out all the Jews. Verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the uh, first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman uh, commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, uh, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus it was written and sealed with a king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder their possessions. And so 11 months hence that this was supposed to happen in the month of Adar. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed or in confusion. And so this was Xerxes, was one weak-willed dude. (laughs) Uh, This guy Haman just comes up to him, and because of um, an insult by Mordecai, he decides that he wants to kill um, all uh, the Jews, and it is believed that this there's just an underlying anti-Semitism throughout the land. And you know, Satan has always wanted to kill the Jews. Satan has always wanted to do that because he knows that through the Jews, the world will be saved from death and hell or everyone that um, comes to, 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 to know the Messiah, uh, Jesus Christ, he knows he'd like to wipe out the Jews because particularly at this time, he, he knows that uh, there had been a promise to King David that uh, from his seed there would come a Messiah, and through the ma- Messiah there would come uh, salvation that would be offered to the whole world. And so... Satan's always wanted to kill the Jews. 
since Jesus died, he still has wanted to uh, kill the Jews throughout history. If you look throughout the Middle Ages, uh, persecution after persecution after persecution, the Jews are going to be used in a tremendous way uh, during the tribulation period to uh, bring back and evangelize really the world. So he still wants to wipe them out. Um, and he still wants to thwart the plan of God uh, here. But, um, it, you know, there was a lot of hatred of the Jews already in many parts uh, of the Persian Empire here. Why? Because they had a lot of money. They prospered. And even though they may not have uh, been uh, faithful to the Lord in many ways, they applied the principles of the word and they had prospered. And that's how the Jews have, they've always prospered. And, you know, the Jewish people are one-tenth of one percent of the world's population. But as, as of a couple of years ago, they had won about uh, 25% of all Nobel Prizes. And that's pretty amazing. And why have they prospered in so many arenas? Well, again, the principles and a long history uh, of, of the Word of God. Count von Zinzendorf, um, uh, the, uh, there was a king. He was, was he the father of the Mennonites? Anyone remember? Van, uh, Count von Zinzendorf, the king asked him, well, give, us, give me one proof uh, that the Word of God is true. And Count von Zinzendorf uh, answered, I'll give you one answer, Jew. <laughs> That's what he said. And he said, just look at Jews and how they're always prosper. Do you think that's just a coincidence? Look at this nation that has existed for thousands of years. They've never been uh, assimilated, uh, and, and their ethnic identity hasn't been just assimilated into uh, other cultures in spite of the fact they were dispersed to the four corners of the earth. Um, and, and, you know, that, that was the answer that he, that he gave. And so it was decreed that 11 months there would be a, a total holocaust of the Jewish people to destroy them and to rob them. Now, I do think it's interesting that um, the city of Shushan itself was, was perplexed. And they were like, what is this that's going on? This is, this is really strange. And there, were, there was a creepy sort of satanic thing going on. That's what was happening. And you can only wonder, being in Germany in the 30s and 40s, that in spite of the fact there may have been a lot of anti-Semitism, you can imagine just living that spiritual darkness. And, and even, even people who were anti-Semitic thinking, this is really creepy. There's something really odd and creepy and dark about this whole thing. And that's because Satan is creepy, odd, and dark. And, and, and that's a real interesting end of the chapter there, that, that, that the people were perplexed. Meanwhile, the king and Haman, the Hitler of the Old Testament, were sitting down to drink there at the end of verse 15. So you see God's plan here uh, is, you know, things look incredibly bleak. You can only imagine the Jewish people living in these cities throughout the empire the letters are being sent to the governors of the city that in 11 months' time, the Jewish people were to be annihilated um, 
killed and plundered. You can only imagine how much they were um, terrorized. The city is stunned. Things look unbelievably bleak. But God had everything in control. He was, he, and, and, and you know, it's the same thing in, in, in our life. When things look just unbelievably bleak, little do we know that God's totally in, in control. In this case, the queen is a Jew. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, one of the, these exiled Jews is now the queen, but um, that's basically at this point an unknown fact. And so, you know, when we get into these situations where we're about to, crumple up in fear and anxiety, there is some fact, some situation, some Queen Esther that's in power, whatever, that the Lord's going to work things out and He's going to work it out to strengthen our faith, to make us worshipers of God, to make us uh, followers of Him, to make us people who love Him and worship Him. And, and you know, it's amazing all these Jewish people who refused to go back to Jerusalem when they were told to. Actually, they got a number of chances to go back, and uh, they didn't. They're, they had basically disobeyed God. They had this weak faith. And, you know, at this point, they may be thinking, wow, <laughs> I'd rather be in Jerusalem. I wish I went. They have the walls there, and, and, and you know... Um, it's probably a, a, a much better place, you know, in Jerusalem. Um, you know, at the time, there were, they were celebrating feasts, and there was temple worships, and there was prophets there. And here you have, out, away from Jerusalem, in, in the land of Persia, very weak people. There weren't any Jewish feasts being celebrated that we can really see here. There's no worship of God. There's no prophetic word going out. But even though none of that was going on, God is still faithful to his people. He's still faithful. And so if you're here tonight and you're thinking, wow, I just have, I've got this this, I've been in this long season of being backslidden or I've done this, I haven't done this and I've fallen short here. And you're thinking, oh, certainly I'm going to be destroyed because how could God ever honor a faith as weak as my faith, a life as weak as, as mine has been? Well, it's not that he's going to honor um, your faith, but he's going to not deny himself. Bible says, when we're faithless, God remains faithful, but because he cannot deny himself. And that's just an incredible and a wonderful thing uh, about the Lord. So, here in Esther, yes, you don't see the name of God being mentioned. You don't hear about faith. You don't hear about worship. You have these really weak people. But let it be encouragement to all of us that God is still faithful. We're, he's, we're still, he has the everlasting arms uh, underneath us no matter where we've been now. Does he want a much better plan for us in the future? Yes. Is today the day of salvation, today the day of a new song, a new life? Yes. 
but his grace is abundant. It's abundant grace. It's an abundant mercy. And this is a, uh, the very picture that we've seen here uh, in the book of Esther. So uh, we will pick up uh, uh, next week in the book of, um, uh, in chapter 4 there. And so just want to let you know that we are going to be uh, praying here in 15 minutes. If you would like to stay.